Welcome to Uncorked, another podcast brought to you by Team Corker. I am in awe of this week's guest. Alexandra is a hero, is a legend, is an incredible human being who so many folks don't quite totally understand. A few media outlets have been able to get to her story before she decided that she no longer wanted to tell the same story to a lot of people who were going to benefit from many of her struggles, in fact, before she became the legend that she is. She has gone through many tough times, grew up in a trailer park. She'll tell you that she wasn't given any hand ups, but she also hasn't let any of her dreams go to die. She was offered a job that required her to travel by bike 10 miles. It took her two hours each way. And she thought that if she could ride her bike for 10 miles, what else could she do? She's gone on to set numerous records covering 18 plus day bike adventures. Her story goes so far beyond the bike and our commitment in this conversation was to try to cover content that you can't find out about her elsewhere. So I hope this is just a small light into recognizing the humanness of us all and really and truly what's possible if you decide to ride a bike perhaps 10 miles at a time. Thank you so much, Alexandra, for your time. And I hope everyone enjoys this one. Oh, hi, Alexandra. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I mean, you are sought after. You are a very tricky human to find, to connect with, to uncover. And it's not lost on me that there is a boundary that you have and to honor that, that says, I don't want to be talking about perhaps the same story or all of my life out for everyone to consume. And I want to start right there. What is your relationship with your boundaries to media and people wanting access to your story or your life from their perspective? Well, first off, thank you for having me. I'm glad that we were able to connect in the way that we did. My relationship with media and giving people access has been a complicated one to figure out because I do think it's important to share stories and I like doing that, but my personal close relationships are so important. And like the people that are in my day-to-day life and the people that make effort to call me and we talk and we make effort to see each other. Like those are so important to me. And I want to give them something different that I just give to everybody else. So I'm raw and full and fully there and fully present with my close people. And that takes a lot of time and energy to be able to do that authentically. And my life and my time is really important and special to me. And I only want to really share that with people who are willing to do the same. It came to this point of like people asking me if I would do this and do this and say this. And I finally was like, no, because I want to give the people that I love something really special. And if I give it away to everybody, then it's not special anymore. Yeah. It's so powerful. I just have enormous amounts of respect for your stance because it's so easy to get washed away into thinking that it's mainstream or that just because quote unquote everyone is doing it that you should too and it's like no why 
And you really gave me pause for thought about a lot of things after our first conversation. <laughs> I was so excited to connect. And I want to get into those other things in life. And yet it feels so important that we start with the power of relationships and what has brought you back to the land that you're on now. Because something tells me that those relationships or the relationships that were instilled in you in a very young age are now impacting who you are as an adult. Yeah, I mean, my journey of coming back home to the Fond du Lac Reservation, I think it's super powerful. My mom was a child adopted out in the Indian adoption era, which was this time when the federal government was intentionally removing native children from their native communities and placing them in non-native homes away from their reservation. So that was my mom. And she was adopted prior to the Indian Child Welfare Act in 1978, which the Indian Child Welfare Act was a super huge act. It worked retroactively to allow indigenous children to find access to their tribal communities, even if the adoptions were closed. However, my mom did have a closed adoption and could not find information about her tribal affiliation, even though federal Indian policy said that she should be able to. And she spent 20 years of her life trying to find out her own tribal identity. She grew up knowing she was from a reservation in Minnesota. She grew up knowing she was native, but that's all. And that's not enough to talk about relationships with your tribal community. You can't be like, oh, I'm native, but from somewhere, like when you're an Indian, you have a tribal community, you have a story, you have a place that you connect with, and that's a community. And then that community can vouch and be like, yeah, she's a member here or not. So finally, when I was 19, my mom found her biological mom and we got enrolled, which is how my tribe defines citizenship. You prove your blood quantum, which is your amount of Indian blood based off of your connection to people on the tribal roles. So we got enrolled as 19, 20, and really having a hard time in life during those years. And my very first bike tour actually was, I rode my bike from Southern Wisconsin all the way up to the reservation to spend a few weeks here with my mom. Wow. And you know, then I got into racing bikes years later, but it was my first bike trip was from Madison, Wisconsin to the reservation. The reservation. Now, what was the journey for you to then call this home? Because obviously you didn't just show up with your bike and stay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, as romantic as that would have been. It was really complex. So I spent a lot of time living in Madison, Wisconsin. That's really where I was a bike messenger and a bike delivery person. And that's where I got my first bike mechanic job. Oh, and I was a live-in nanny for a family for eight years. And I had a really deep relationship with that family that I had worked for. They be- ended up becoming my family. They ended up just believing in me despite all of my shortcomings. I was so young when I started working for them. I think it was 18 or 19, just like at that time, thinking about the fact that like I'm helping raise somebody's child. Yeah. (laughs) I can't believe they trusted me with that. But like also in high school, I was pretty active in the drinking and drug scene, really heavily into opiates. 
And that continued on and off for the next, I don't know, 10, no, I think, I don't think I've used anything in like a long time, maybe 24 or 25. And I'm 30, turned 32 this year. So it's been a while since I've abused any hard drugs, but I really struggled with that. I've really struggled with an eating disorder for a really long time. That's been probably been like my most important relationship, which is really heartbreaking for me to say, but struggling with all these like mental and emotional and physical addictions, I was like, oh my God, I got to go away. I got to get out of here. This is where I grew up. I grew up in Wisconsin. I was like, okay, I got to see more. So I ended up moving to Bozeman, Montana to get a job with the Montana Conservation Corps. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to go to college. And I went to college or I got accepted to the University of Arizona in Tucson for American Indian Studies. And somewhere in there, I had decided that I wanted to be a dentist. Oh. But I applied to school in the science program and they didn't accept me. But they did accept my third choice, which was American Indian Studies. So I decided that I would move to Tucson, Arizona and learn about Indians. I knew I was Indian. I didn't really know that much, though, at all. I went to some powwows as a kid and learned what everybody else knows about being an Indian through movies and magazines and research that always talks about how these poor Indians are just so struggling. So I ended up getting really into mountain biking when I lived in Tucson, which was a blessing, but started learning about Indians and American Indian studies and was like, huh, I'm really learning a lot about these tribes of the Southwest And I would be in classes with Pima and Navajo or Diné and some Tahona Otum people. And they would introduce themselves and their language. And I was like, wow, that is so awesome. That's so badass. I want to do that. But then thinking like, oh, the only place that my language is spoken is up where I'm living now. And I decided that if I was going to learn about Indians, I should be learning about my Indians. <laughs> so I applied to transfer to the University of Minnesota Duluth and moved here, moved into my mom's house until I could find a place to live. And my mom lives in the compound. It's the subsidized housing section, or we call it the compound, the subsidized housing section of the reservation. And I lived there for like two years while I got my shit together and could try and get an apartment of my own. That's amazing. I mean, it's a lot easier to talk about on the other side because the intersectionality and the number of relationships that you just spoke of, really that have so much to do with yourself, to look those in the mirror every day and say, you know, what's the relationship I have with my body? What's the relationship I have with my food? And it doesn't come from your body in the moment. It comes from like, you know, the body you were born into and the media that you've consumed. And subconsciously, not knowingly, you didn't set yourself up for desiring harm. And it's so important to talk about, and it's not easy to talk about. 
And no wonder why you want to keep relationships so near and dear. You are special. Your body, your vessel is special. And now you're asking it to do so many things. Both get drunk and super high and now <laughs> ride hundreds of miles. All of those things are experiences, you know? I feel like there are some parallels of understanding between the escape that I would get from using opiates and then the same places that I go to completely sober on a bike ride on a bike race especially the most recent race that I did I was having breathing problems and wanting to quit wanting to quit and I read this book on breath like really channeling deep into that book and remembering like I'm not suffocating and then all of a sudden eight hours passed and I was like, what was I doing with my breathing? I was just really focused on breathing, which is, I mean, it's not unlike the experiences I would have when I was using drugs, except now it's like my brain is forcing me to go to those places. It's so powerful. Our brains are so powerful. Yes. And what I think is so beautiful is to acknowledge when we understand how powerful our brains are. So it's like, they're always powerful, yet somehow we don't give them and honor them the power that they really deserve until you're asked to tap into it. And when you tap in, you're like, oh gosh, it was my brain in the way. (laughs) It really is most of the time. I believe so much that And I don't even know if brain is necessarily the word that I want. I think English fails explaining my thoughts all the time, but the energy or the, the intention or whatever, like all these big concepts of energy, brain, intention, thinking, feeling that generates a relationship with the world, our non-human relatives And all of that, just like, I feel like it all plays together Mm -hmm. to create an outcome and it all needs to be in balance in a certain way for it to be whatever we think favorable needs to be. Yeah. But there's always something to be learned. I really believe with this last race that I had, that there was some greater lesson that I needed to learn about letting go of my ego because I wanted to win and it was just not even going to happen. And once you've won enough and everybody's watching you. Like I turned on my phone and I had 120 text messages, like what's happening, what's wrong? And I'm just like, can't I just have this for myself? Like it's vulnerable and scary to share that stuff with people. And I wanted to tell every single text message I got to go fuck themselves. (laughs) (laughs) You don't know me. (laughs) Yeah, fair. Let's talk about winning from the place of, we joke, but winning feels good. Being on top is cool. It feels good. It feels great. And then when we don't win, how does that feel? And I wrap it with, when will winning be enough for you? Or what will keep you going? You know, like you said, all of a sudden you were in fourth and then you were getting past. Winning is amazing. And I think I have a really beautiful relationship with the winning because I spent more time losing than I have winning and other things. It just so happened that I found ultra endurance was where I generally would win if I really was invested in it. But I do 
lots of local shorter gravel races, like 50, 100, 200 mile races, which is, that's like super challenging for me because I really only start to excel in that first overnight. Like if you watch any of my races, you'll notice a pattern in how I do things. And it takes a few days to get to that point. It's like the long game that I'm really, really connected to. And then the shorter stuff. So I spend a lot of time losing. And I think that prepares me in some capacity for when big losing does happen. But it's so hard. It's so hard to lose. I had to first check my ego and be like, okay, well, I'm not winning and I feel really sick and I can't do what I know that I can do. Mm -hmm. And I just want to quit. And then evaluating like, oh, but why do you want to quit? What is going to happen if you quit? Mm. You still have to figure out how to get back to your car. Mm. And that still is a long ways away. So like, why not just stay on the course? Maybe it's just not your time to win. And the woman that was beating me, it's my friend Katie. And she rides on the same team as I do, Team Chumba. And we've raced so many times together. And I've beat her every time we've raced in like the big races. She always beats me in day races. She's such a strong athlete. But this was the first time we set out for an ultra together. And she was winning and she was shredding. She was doing amazing and feeling like, you know what? I'm happy. I want to finish because I want her to know that she beat me like fair and square. And I just want her to have that for herself because she really does put in the time and effort and just like feeling so much love for her and so much respect for all the people that were still on the course. It was like, unless I'm literally dying, I will finish a race just because like, I don't have to win everything and losing makes winning feel that much more powerful just because it's not promised you have that familiarity with losing and how disappointed you feel but then you take that chance like that losing and it's not so much disappointment anymore it's just like opportunity to try harder next time or to do something different next time I just want to ask and this is not a planted question it's just there's so many beautiful similarities between sport and life And when you take the metaphor of what you're saying, not everyone may relate to riding your bike 300, 400 miles and what it's like to quit or to give up or to win. I want to ask, where else in life do you think about quitting or not? And that relationship with how winning feels. The parallels between bike riding, bike racing and real life are so numerous, which I didn't necessarily know in the beginning of racing bikes, but I did my first long distance ride the divide in 2015. And it seemed like the longest thing in the entire world to do. I was like, there's no way I can do this. I quit every single thing like that bike tour that I went on to the reservation. And I rode out to Colorado And then I ran out of money and took a ride back home and I was planning on living out there, but I gave up and I had dropped out of college so many times and I'd been on 8,000 diets and I quit them and I just never would finish anything. And then I started bike racing and I started learning like, okay, a bike race is just a series of a lot of different days, a lot of different moments. And 
a mountain might seem like it goes on forever and ever, but at some point you do get to go all the way to the top and then you get to come down the other side and then you'll have to go back up again. And that translated to my understanding of college where I was like, okay, it's really just one semester at a time. All I have to do is finish this one semester. And really all that is, is just like one week after another. So you break it down to all these smaller moments and it ends up adding up to being something really great. So I just think all the lessons that you learn enduring through these long, hard events are just like life. It's just like every relationship. You'll have such happy highs, you know, with somebody that you love, you can have the best moments and then you'll have bad times. And just because the bad times happen doesn't mean that the world's ending. It just helps you gain appreciation for those really happy light times. Mm-hmm. Gosh. Well, I mean, we're recording this on what feels like the other side or hopefully the other side of a pandemic. I know that on your side of the border, things are definitely a little more open. You're traveling. Mm-hmm. I'm glad to hear there's races. <laughs> Not quite there yet in Canada, but fingers crossed. And I'm wondering, what's your perspective on this next dawn, if you will? And having had the year that I think everyone's just had in in Mm -hmm. varying capacities, what has the impact to you been? I think it's been just a shift in perspective in my world. I had plans, school, career, et cetera, plans for me. I was planning on going to dental school and I was like, I can give up racing. I can just race like one race a year or something or show up to weekends and that'll be fine. Like I'm getting it all out of my system and I'm having fun doing it. And then the pandemic happened and all the races were taken away without me having to make the decision. It just was there. And I didn't get to regret my decision or anything. It just happened and it happened to everybody. And it was in those moments where I was like, Oh my God, I can't give it up. I just, it's such a integral part of my soul and makes me who I am. And maybe someday I will want to, but Right now, I still want to race bikes. It's amazing. It's so cool. I'm so glad you haven't given up. I feel so grateful that you would share the parts of your vulnerable heart that go beyond bike racing. And I know that we can find so much, I mean, maybe to your dismay about (laughs) online. And yet I just so honor the human that it takes to get to the start line. And your finish lines are incredible because you're given a lot of chances to throw the towel in and it's so 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 incredible that you just don't so I hope you take this and like tuck it in your freaking bra to not (laughs) give up on whether it is dental school or whatever matters you know there's something really powerful about the and that you can be a bike racer and a dentist and you can you know live on the reserve and support your community and do whatever else you want to do. And I hope you never forget the and because we need people like you to not give up on the rest of the world for sure. Oh, thanks. That's cute. The end. The end. The um, end. <laughs> before <laughs> the end, we ask one last question. And that is what is currently making your heart beat faster? Currently, my heart is beating faster. It's not even caffeine because I'm not even on caffeine. What's up? (laughs) I am later today leaving to head north to Grand Marais, Minnesota, up the North Shore of Lake Superior. 
with my group of indigenous women riders that have been training for a race, another race. This is our second race together. And we're going to go do our first. Everybody's going to be self-supported instead of like me leading everybody. So I'm really excited to see what the women think after they tow in their own finish lines. Amazing. Just for context, you shared that this is either a 50 or a hundred mile day and you can't wait for such a short experience. And just to put into context for many people riding 50 or hundred miles is a very long feet. And so I hope, I mean, maybe I do wish that you lose perspectives because then you keep doing these amazing things, but for the rest of the world to know that 50 or hundred miles is still phenomenal. Yeah, it's just a, a low chill spin. <laughs> I'm really excited for just, I will not be racing because my body is tired from last week. Gosh, you're incredible. Thank you so much. And I hope you really, truly never stop riding bikes. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And your persistence and creativity <laughs> with how we talked. I loved it. Ah, thanks so much. 